You are now entering the MXU podcast. No credentials required. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of the MXU Lighting Podcast. I'm here with my good friend Lee Fields, and I'm Jeff Sandstrom, and we are thrilled to welcome our good friend Daniel Cannell to the conversation. So as many of you saw on social media, we decided to uh, basically, uh, because of lighting friends of ours and other production folks who have asked uh, about what, when are you guys going to start talking about lights, we've decided to go ahead and jump in. Now, Lee and I are not the ones to be leading that conversation because we're um, definitely not on the lighting side in our expertise, but we have good friends who are. And so we're um, just thrilled to be doing this and glad that you're part of our very first conversation. So guys, welcome. We're so glad that we're doing this. Now, wait a second. I, I don't like it when the lights get put in my eyes. So I feel like that qualifies me to have opinions. Nobody likes it, Lee, but we just have to deal with it. <laughs> Nobody does like it, do they? Not really. You know, and I really don't like when I hear singers that I'm responsible for complaining about choking on haze either. So we're going to have to uh, address a lot of things with you, Daniel. It's, that's, it's going to be a long day. That's going to have to be a whole podcast all by itself. <laughs> now, I will say, I find that the older I get, the less I like the, uh, the lights in my own eyes. So it may have something to do with that. Maybe. Maybe all the uh, 21-year-olds with $60,000 consoles that their church gave them, that's all they know how to do with them. $60,000 consoles and Chinese Sharpies? That's, yes. that's all they know? Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole nother. We can just start making notes on, on podcast topics. Podcast topics. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So um, for those of our audience who um, are surprised that we're even addressing lighting, um, why don't you, Daniel, introduce yourself for those who may not know who you are and just give us uh, some of your bio and background and um, experience and why you think this is even a good idea. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you already introduced me, so obviously my name's Daniel. Um, I have been involved in lighting in some form or fashion for about 30 years now. Um, interestingly enough, and, and this could turn into a real long story, so I'm not sure how long we want this podcast to be. I'll, I'll try and keep it short, but... Um, Grew up in a uh, in Huntsville, Alabama, and with an older sister that is very, very artistic. Um, at that time in my life, I was not at all. Um, you know, I, I played a handful of sports and, and did all the things that, that young guys do, but uh, was not artistic in any way. And we grew up in a decent neighborhood, but it was surrounded by neighborhoods that maybe weren't quite as nice. So um, a lot of the schools in the area weren't that great. And uh, my parents, looking for a way to, to get us in better schools, found a, a magnet art school for my sister. And uh, because I was a sibling, I automatically got accepted. Um, so got got accepted to go to this art school. That My first year there was fifth grade. And uh, so they tried me in a few different things, tried to have me play an instrument, tried to have me sing, which is a horrible, horrible thing. Um, <laughs> Prove it. <laughs> might enjoy a little bit more of the scotch first. Uh, the, uh, but tried, tried everything and couldn't really do it. Well, in sixth grade, when they do the school musical, you have to participate. It's a requirement. And to this day, I remember the, uh, the show director looking at me uh, almost apologetically and saying, well, Daniel, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't have another place for you. We're going to have to have you run the lights. And I went, oh, well, that sounds neat. And uh, okay, you know, hold on. Yeah, that's unreal. 
That is amazing. Yeah, I, I love this story. Uh, that what he thought he would need to apologize for would change your life. Yes, and uh, she is, has been a big part of my life up to this day. Um, yeah, I, I'm still in touch with her. Uh, her name's Debbie Fleischman from Huntsville, Alabama. If anybody's listening that happens to know Debbie, Debbie has been involved in um, uh, you know theater in that area for decades. So there's a very good chance somebody's listening to this and might know her. But uh, yeah, she she just said, uh, "Hey, I need you to do this." Interestingly enough, that lighting console is now setting in my warehouse here. Oh, they, I love it! Wow. They tore down that theater uh, years ago probably about four or five years ago, and she called me and said, is there anything you want? And I was like, yes, I want the console. It doesn't function anymore. It's the technology at the time. Like, it was old when I used it in, what, that, that would have been 1989 or 90 when that was. Um, it was old then. It's an old analog Klegel console, 18-channel, two-scene console, um, long before the days of, of computerized consoles, or at least if there were any, it was they were you know just coming out and just on the biggest of the biggest tours. Uh, but yeah, uh, just took to it, and that became home for me. Um, uh, interestingly enough, tried to tried to audio a bit during that time, and learned pretty quickly that I need to stay behind the lighting console. Well, you did a good job getting your USB microphone to work today. So. Thank you, thank you. It only took me twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though. I know a lot of people who can point back to a school theater tech crew as being like the the light bulb moment that mm -hmm. just kind of even got him interested in the fact that there is something that's not on stage that's theatrical that you know that I can be a part of whether it's whether it's lights or sound or set design mm -hmm. or whatever I have a bunch of friends who you know did that when they were in high school but you were a sixth grader I mean 11 12 years old mm -hmm. basically set the course for your entire career very much so you know um my father spent his career as a police officer, uh, serving our, our city there in Alabama. And then up until that point, that's what I thought I wanted to do. Well, by seventh grade, I realized, no, I'm going to do something with lighting. And having grown up in theater, I thought it would be um, doing something in theater. But, uh, you know, God had other plans and directed me, um, you know, first through touring. So um, I got a job sweeping floors and emptying trash cans at a lighting company there in Huntsville when I was 15. Uh, sorry, actually, first off. I got a light. I got a job doing lights for a DJ when I was 14. Made 40 bucks a night to come in and run a bunch of park hands and, and scanners for a DJ uh, every night. And then 15 started working for a lighting company, and that uh, things just kind of progressed from there. Uh, they gave me multiple opportunities to start going out and doing shows. Um, did a very brief, brief, brief stint in college and realized I, it was not for me. So hit the road at 18. Uh, spent a decade touring uh, with a variety of different different acts. Um, and then uh, probably the part that, that some people are more familiar with, uh, my, my good buddy, y'all's good buddy, Andrew Stone, who I'd toured with for years, gave me a call uh, in 2006. I was out with uh, Switchfoot at the time and uh, gave me a call. This was, you know, uh, back very pre-iPhone days. So gave me a call on my, uh, I'm pretty sure. Palm it was Trio. A, a was it Palm Trio? Palm Trio or a Motorola Razor. I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> Or no, it may, be, it may have been a StarTech. Do you guys remember the StarTechs? Yes. StarTech, yes, those were some of the best phones. The uh, road managers all had the Palm Trio. Yes, yeah. I wasn't. Uh, I started getting into Blackberries around this time, so I think it could have been a Blackberry. Well, because the Trio uh, had a great keyboard for doing email, so you had to, you know, as a tour manager, you had to be able to have email access all the time. So, But the, the flip part was flimsy and broke off on mine all the time. That's, that's the only thing I didn't like about it. 
Uh, but yeah, he he called and said, uh, "Hey, I don't know if you've heard, but I'm, I'm working at this church out in Tulsa now." And uh, you know, for especially, I'll say for the younger guys, in 2006, production at church was not cool like it is now. Um, there were a few pockets of places, but uh, for the most part, you didn't go from being you know very accomplished road audio engineer and tour manager to working at a church. And so I said, yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard you at a church now. He said, just hold your judgment for a minute. I need somebody to design a show. Um, why don't you come out and spend Christmas with us? And I thought, okay, I'm going to go do this easy show at this church in Tulsa and get paid to hang out with an old buddy for two weeks. And got out there and met the team and fell in love with the place. And that was, I mean, I'd been around some churches um, from a production standpoint, but never, you know, in fact, Church on the Move at that time was not very impressive production-wise. That's why they'd hired Stone. That's why they were starting to talk to me. Uh, they were, were wanting to use production for more of a communication tool. Um, they were starting to see other churches like Fellowship and Willow Creek do that. And uh, was out there for a Christmas show, and then they offered me a job after. And I went back to Alabama and thought about it for about a week and said, you know, yeah, yeah, I think this is, uh, I think this is for me. So, Wow. That's awesome. And then you met your wife in Tulsa? We did, and uh, I'm, I'm going to, well, I'm, all right, I'm going to tell a, a story on myself. Okay. So two th- this is 2007 at this point. Um, I've moved across the country to work at, at a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm single. And, uh, of course, you know, if you're a single guy, I think I would have been, what, 28 at the time. Um, you know, you're, as single guys at age do, you want to you meet a girl. But I'm working at this church, and, and that's pretty much all I'm doing is working and then going home. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to meet a girl at the church because I just got hired here, and then if something like doesn't go good, I have to see her all the time. Plus, I, I work here, and if she's an attendee, that could just be awkward. So again, keep in mind, 2007, a friend of mine says, hey, you should try internet dating. And I'm going, no, 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 there's, there's nothing wrong with me. Like, I'm an attractive guy. I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can meet a girl. And he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, the thing is, if she's not already in your social circle, so you can go on a date with her, and if it doesn't go good, you just never have to see her again. And I went, oh, brilliant. So this was, again, 2007, so I signed up for Match.com. And uh, I, I, you know, put my profile together and, and you know, chatted with a, one or two girls in there. And Was what, the backlighting on your profile picture just dialed? You know, I uh, I think I was actually sitting on my motorcycle in my uh, driveway, so it's even more awkward than, than that, yeah. No, that's that's well-played, motorcycle. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, if you ask my wife, then, uh, well, I guess I'm, I'm skipping to the end of the story, but yeah, if you ask my wife, that was totally what uh, what did, what <laughs> brought her in. But this, you know, this girl messages me, and I'm, at the time, I'm thinking it's spam, or like a, what I guess what they call a catfish, where it's like, oh, you know, message me, and then I'm going to give you a link to my site where you can pay for pictures that... She shouldn't be sending, but um, <laughs> I'm looking at this this picture of this girl, and I'm like, it doesn't seem like one of those. So let me, I'll play along. Let me see what's the worst that can happen. And I, uh, so I start messaging them with this girl, and sure enough, I'm like, man, no, she's real. I'm, then I go, okay, well, the pictures must be like pre-accident or <laughs> you know pre-weight gain or something. Um, but I'm, I'm like, what have I got to lose? I don't know her. I don't have to see her again. Well, also over the course of messaging, we start talking about each other and she asked me what I do for a living. And I say, I work at this really big church in town. And she says, Oh, well I go to a really big church in town. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I go to, a, I work at a really big church. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I go to one. I said, okay. I work at a place called church on the move. And she says, yeah, that's where I go to church. Uh-oh. So uh... my whole, uh, plan of 
not dating a girl from the church went down the drain, but go ahead and set up a date with her. And, um, uh, we go to dinner and again, I'm expecting her to walk in and just maybe like, Oh shoot, you know, that's, it's her. And she brought her hundred pounds with her that she put on. Um, (laughs) but no, the girl that walks in is even more beautiful than the pictures she had shared on match. And my only goal at that night was, uh, to try and get a second date. I'm go- I'm just thinking if I can just get this girl to go out with me a second time, I will never have a confidence problem again in my life. That's awesome. That was 12 years ago. We got, uh, two little boys, six and eight. And, uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's amazing. So you got at least two more dates. Out I of did it, at least like. two more dates. Well, I'm, I'm, that's the thing. I'm never taking her out on a second date. That way I can keep pushing it along. And I'm afraid when I do, then it's, uh, it's all over after that. So that's so great. That's awesome. Okay. So, then you spent how long did you spend full time at Church on the Move? I think I think it was just a hair over nine years is what we figured out. It was uh you know, I'm from Alabama, so I'm I'm without taking my shoes off, I'm bad at math. But um started full time there in May of two thousand seven and left full time in two thousand fifteen. So what is that, eight years? Yeah. Okay, well then yeah, eight years. And then you kind of alluded to this when you got there, it wasn't very cool. And a lot of people know the story there and have seen the before pics and, yeah. you know, where it got to around 2012, 13, 14, 15, when it kind of reached peak seeds. Yeah. Talk about what that was like walking in somewhere that wasn't that cool hearing vision from pastor and yep. wit and the, and the team and then executing that over a, basically a decade yeah. to get to where you guys got to. Yeah, especially for our audio audience. A lot of them only see like church production magazine pictures. And so mm-hmm. all they see is the wow factor. But there's a huge journey from point A to point B. Oh, absolutely. That's probably a cool story. Yeah, that's uh, that may actually be a hard one to tell, but I'll do my best here. Um, yeah, so when I started in 2007, so from a lighting standpoint, um, we had a Hog 1000, which... You know, a lot of people will know what that is. A lot of people won't. But the Hog 1000 lighting console. Uh, we owned four Vera lights, four old VL1000s, and that was all the moving lights we had at the time. Um, and everything else was Parkans, like Par 64s. We're not talking cool LED Pars here. We're talking old school steel, you know, Par 64s. Um, the uh, COTM has a, a big movie background, so they had a lot of like 2K Fresnels and 1K Fresnels. Um, and they had started buying, you know, some assort- assorted Lecos and things of that nature. But then again, you know, all of this is pre-LED. So all of this is just, you know, conventional uh, tungsten or, or halogen-based fixtures. Um, but came on board. And one of the things that, that caused me to, to take the job was that even though none of it was physically cool yet, I mean, they still had green carpet. The house lighting was eight-foot fluorescent house lights that we had to just turn it on and off with a switch. Um, so we would do worship with the house lights off, and then when it came time to um, to have uh, the message, I had to reach over and, and kick a switch on in the wall to draw on all the fluorescent lights, which you can imagine how good that looked. <laughs> so nothing cool there from a from a visual standpoint. Um, sorry, I keep thinking of more things. the 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 video in there was three rear projected four by three ratio uh, projection screens that looked horrible up above the stage. Um, but what got me was that talking with Wit, talking with Andrew, um, even talking with Andy Chrisman, um, they all had this vision, and maybe they couldn't they couldn't describe it 
what the end was going to be like, but they had this this vision of we at least we're heading in that direction. We want to. It's not just that we want to get you know a bunch of cool toys in here and, and make it a big wow moment. We want to use production to really change the way we communicate with people. Um, and I, I mean that's I don't know any other way to summarize it than that. And you could just sense from being around all of them that they were going to do that. It was going to happen. We didn't know what it was going to be, but it was going to happen. And it made you excited and want to be a part of it. Well, the cool thing about that to me, because we talk about this from an audio perspective all the time, is with a vision like that, then it almost doesn't matter the tools that you have to work with in the meantime. Oh, because exactly. if, you're going, if you're going towards something that is a bullseye on the target, that is a vision for the future, then you just you use what you have in the meantime to accomplish that goal. So, and and for somebody like you, I mean, I've always said like going to a festival or something, it's like, man, if I have an LD who can make a 120K Parkan rig look awesome, then that to me is like, gosh, as the tools get better, mm-hmm. it's only going to get exponentially better. But man, if you, if you as an operator or a designer can't make those tools work, then no matter what tool we put in your toolbox, it's going to be inferior because as we say all the time, it ain't the arrow, it's the Indian. So exactly. talk for a little bit about that in terms of that transition. Like how were you, cause you've already had a ton of experience. You're 20, almost, I don't know, 15 years in by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so you brought a certain level of skill to the table that was established kind of irrespective of the tools you had to work with. This is sort of a, a tangent, but I, I had this discussion with a bunch of friends at WFX uh, a month or two ago, and I think it really applies to this this part of this conversation. Um, you know, I think a lot of guys feel like if they're not getting to use a Grand MA, or if they're not on like the nice big Grand MA, or if they're not using the latest moving lights, somehow they are slipping behind in their personal development as, as designers, technicians, programmers, whatever you want to call it. Um, and to me, that could not be farther from the truth. The time in my career, even my time in my entire career, but definitely pre-COTM that I'm most thankful for now is the time when I had to do things like what you're talking about. I had to walk into a festival um, and forget 120 park hands. Sometimes we were lucky to have 24 park hands and a hand, you know, 12 movers, nine of which worked halfway. Um, those were the events that made me uh, have to figure out how to be a good designer on the fly and just how to work with whatever was in front of me. It's not the the projects where I had every tool I possibly needed. So, um, coming you know coming up through the, my touring time, a lot of it was with um, you know Christian bands, which there was a you know we had a large variety there. There was times when I was out with bigger groups and we had pretty much every piece of equipment we could want. And there was times when it was we were just walking into weird places with the whatever, and you had to make a show look good. So. Coming into COTM, there was there was some familiarity there of well, we don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to we're going to figure out how to make it look good. So uh, Stone and I together just kind of started working out that process. And um, again, Wit didn't have an exact target. Um, he didn't have you know, hey, this is what exactly what I want us to look like. So we just started experimenting. Um, some of that experimenting uh, ended up really great. Some of it, I'm hoping the pictures got deleted. Um, They're uh, a big variety um, because it wasn't just, we all knew what we were doing, but we didn't necessarily know the exact direction we were trying to go either. And, you know, a lot of what, um, you know, I'll give credit to stone for in this whole process is we started first focusing on building up um, 
trust with wit trust with pastor george um you know there were years where we were dealing with with tiny budgets and and small asks that over time grew and grew and grew as they saw that if we asked for something and said if you give us this we will deliver this without fail we always delivered that because that's what built up that trust over time so uh so you started in 2007 um i'd say there was about three years of us just um experimenting trying different things um I'm trying to remember when we did the remodel because that's when things really changed. But pre-remodel, it was um, it was a lot of band-aids. Things like we designed um, our own custom chandeliers to hang throughout the auditorium that we could use as house lights so we could finally turn the fluorescent lights off during worship. Um, we, had, we had no aisle lights in there, so we had old PAR 64s hanging over all the aisles, uh, which... Some guys listening probably have never touched a PAR 64, but when you the light output of them is is oblong. It's kind of like it looks like a giant pill. So we would spin the bottles in those where the, the bottle ran up and down the aisles to kind of create aisle lights for us. Um, we made a lot of stuff out of coroplast, a lot of stuff, um, some good, some bad, uh, a lot of string lights. Um, one of the things we did during that time that ended up becoming real popular is we made something called a Dewey light, which... Um, the story behind those is there's a there's a bulb called a DWE, and I just knew from from tours where we would use um, like audience blinders as side light on band that these things looked really good when you when the light was on people. It's just this nice, warm, very soft light, and we were trying to improve the quality of our video lighting uh, at the time. So we made a bunch of our own little fixtures with a single one of these bulbs in it that we could put around the um, the band for just lighting the band. Um, and we couldn't find uh, a good housing to use for it. And so people think we call them, call them Dewey lights because it, the, the letters for the bulb is DWE. Well, in fact, there was this 80-year-old uh, man that worked in construction uh, there at Church on the Move. And when we were looking for a, a housing for these, we went and asked the, the head of construction, hey, do you, do you know anything that would kind of fit this that's made out of metal? And he had no idea. You know, Dewey, this old 80-year-old guy named Dewey, wasn't even in the, in the conversation and we just kind of hear him pop up, you know, oh, what you're looking for is a, is a stovepipe producer. And so we named the lights after him, named them Dewey lights. But those <laughs> were so uh, great. <laughs> those are little homemade lights we made. But, yeah, it was just years of that experimenting. And then uh, when they decided to remodel the auditorium, uh, we had been able to build up a lot of trust with Witt, a lot of trust with his dad, uh, Pastor George. Um, and so rather than saying, hey, we're going to hire this, this outside firm to come in and design um, our auditorium, they said, okay, Andrew and Daniel, what do we need? Um, and so it gave us the opportunity to really build out that space the way that we knew it needed to be to serve the vision of Wit, to serve the vision of Pastor George. Um, and they let us they let us do a lot. That That's when we really got to start doing, I think, the, the level of events that COTM became known for. That's awesome. And that's how, you know, all, all of us – got to know you and all your work. I mean, it was like something happened, a, a switch was flipped and it's like, look how good this video of the church on the move services look like. And everybody was watching you guys online and going to your conference. And m- that wasn't because like people heard how good the band sounded. Usually it was like pictures on Facebook and Twitter and then Instagram. And a, a lot of that, I hate to say it is you were, the gateway into everything else that was going on there. Like if it wasn't for how good those shots looked, how was the gateway I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that seeds would have been as impactful because you were like, 
the biggest magnet of attention was those pictures and those videos. Because a lot of that was pre-streaming. So it wasn't like you could just tune in and check out the service live on Sunday morning. It was all about what was being photographed and put up as, you know, content on Seeds or the website or whatever. If I remember right, I think Vimeo was a big thing at the time. So yep. we, would, we would record and then post on Vimeo after the fact. So, Yeah, that was a very fun time because we – it was – I felt – I think we all felt like we were kind of at the cutting edge of of something, and not just that we were, not just that we were doing big events, not just that it was flashy, but um, you know the part that will always uh, I will always remember is everything was very much in sync, and to me that's why it worked. It was um, you may have not, you know, people may have seen the pictures first, and that's what brought them to it, um, but the the pictures were what they were because it was synced in like very well with what the band was doing. Um, with yeah. the, the rest of the creative content, even down to the you know the way it sounded, um, you know that that was there are a lot of events I do nowadays where you walk away from it going well my part looked good. Um, right. My favorite part about that period of time for COTM is it looked good, it sounded good, the content was 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 right to begin with, um, and we were just all in sync. And again, I think that goes back to that idea of everybody kind of moving toward the same vision. Even if you don't know exactly what it's going to look like, we're in this together. We've got this momentum. We're kind of tracking mm-hmm. as one team that, to your point, has a ton of trust with each other and with our leadership, which is, you can't say enough about that. 100%. If, I, if, if, they, if we're having a problem in the church production world right now that, that stands out to me the most... I think it's that there are a lot of young guys who are incredibly well-intentioned. Um, I want to preface that out rough about incredibly well-intentioned in what they're wanting to do, but they're, they're seeing what a lot of the, the cool um, organizations out there are doing. They're seeing what the passions are doing, the elevations are doing. And these, I work for all these guys. They're all friends of mine. I think what they all do is awesome. But what they do works very well for them because it's in sync, as you're saying, with everything else going on at their church, with their worship, with their leadership, um, it's very easy to get caught up in that and then want that for your organization um, when maybe it doesn't fit what you guys are doing. You know, I don't think this is isolated to church, by the way. Like I, you go to concerts and you know you're listening to a country band and the lighting programming looks like it's for Dead Mouse. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's but then there are certain bands you go see. Like I'm trying to think of the most recent one that I felt like. Oh, this worked together. Uh, the Jay Z tour last year that he did in the round, mm-hmm. there weren't very many lights in there, and they didn't change colors that often. But it had this ominous vibe to it that fit him. Mm-hmm. You know, it was one of the greatest hip hop artists of all time on stage by himself. Can't see any other band member. Very simple. The songs speak for themselves. His influence in that culture speaks for itself and then the lighting complemented that Mm -hmm. so it i think it goes way beyond just church but we definitely see it more in church because budgets and resources and people and things like that yeah no i think you're you're dead on there and this is um this is a topic i talk about a lot and to me it one of the reasons i feel like maybe um you know, I, I miss that mark personally sometimes. There's even events I do now where I walk away from going, ah, I wasn't quite synced up. But on the ones that I, I am, um, I actually attribute that to my start in theater. Um, 
when it's when it's a concert, it's very easy just to focus on the flash, and it's very easy just to go, oh well, my job is to make it as big and flashy as possible. When you're doing theater, um, there's a story being told on stage. Your only on. job is to support that story. Well, when we're a lot of you know bringing it back to the church world, it's very easy to look at the stage and go, well, there's a drum kit, there's a keyboards. It, this is a concert. My job is to make this big and flashy. No, your job is to help tell the story, and the story is much deeper than that. It's the culture of your church. It's the audience you're trying to reach. It's the tone. So that's why with things like that Jay-Z concert, if you had put another rapper up there singing those same songs, those lights may have not worked because they didn't have the the weight of Jay-Z. It didn't have right. the presence of Jay-Z. So right. as, as, as lighting designers, you know, you guys in audio, you are amplifying what we're hearing. Well, us in lighting, we're amplifying what you're seeing and feeling. So you have to be very in touch. What what are we trying to amplify? What is it we want people to feel? And it's if we're hitting the wrong thing is is when we have these these, you know, disconnections we're talking about. Okay, so you just said like sometimes you miss that and what you're doing now, like you and I've worked together a lot this year mm-hmm. on stuff outside of church. We've done a bunch of conferences and different stuff where you're on the phone or on video chat with a client or a church or a conference production programming team, then you're trying to digest that as fast as possible with as little amount of information as you can, then to go design something and then show up and program it mm-hmm. so that the people experiencing it can feel those emotions. So how do you do that on the fly in a very short amount of time like that? Well... <laughs> Sometimes I don't know if I know. You know, um, I'll I'll tell you what it what it is for me. Um, I like to be as close to the source as possible, and and here's what I mean by that. Um, you remember the game of telephone from when we were kids, where yeah, I whisper to you something to you, you whisper it to Jeff. We keep whispering it down the line, and by the time it gets to the end, the the phrase is completely changed. So when I'm working with an organization, um, my goal is to try and get to where I can talk with and have a connection with whoever's establishing the tone of what we're doing. Um, that doesn't always work, but you know, here's an example. Um, so it's, it's Sunday right now. Uh, Tuesday, I'll be in Nashville programming the elevation portion of the elevation Hillsong tour. Um, and you know, our, our buddy Corey is, is production managing that. Um, Corey knows this about me. He knows I like hearing from the source. So literally on the way here, I'm in my office right now here in, in Bixby, Oklahoma, on my way here, I was listening to an audio recording from Chris Brown, who's, you know, heads up worship for, for Elevation, uh, with just him talking about what he was feeling for the lighting. What, you know, and it was maybe a 45-second recording, maybe a minute, um, but it, it was just kind of going through a few things he said. And I don't know, stuff. the stuff he said, He I think he knows well enough by now that this stuff matters, but worship leaders, pastors, whoever, may think, well, I don't know anything about lighting. I have nothing to say. Wrong, 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 wrong. You have something to say about the tone of the event, about what inspired you for the part you're doing for the event. Every little bit of that matters for for someone in my position. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to th- think of some of the stuff that Chris said that I can share. Uh, he just said, he said, "Man, I'm just uh, I'm feeling bright, uh, bright color, bright lighting." He goes, uh, lately I've just had this aversion to red, so I'm just I'm not feeling that right now. And he goes, beyond that, I just bright and I, I got to go back and listen to it again to make a few notes, but I believe it's a bright and just I'm feeling the word joyful. 
that little bit tells me so much about the tone of what we need to do. So I don't have a lot of time with this event at all. Um, in fact, I, I needed to do more pre- some previs today and I didn't get a chance to. So we're going to try and knock out some previs work real fast in the morning before we head to Nashville. Um, and then I think I've got eight or nine hours in Nashville to get the whole their whole segment of the tour programmed. But that little minute description that Chris sent me is huge. That could have saved you a whole day. Absolutely. Because if you didn't know that and you went and did what you thought they're looking for, and it could have been dark and ominous. Yes. The opposite of joy. Yes. You know, something else you just said was um, that they do have a voice, even though they don't know anything about lighting. Talk to someone who's listening to this, production managers, church tech directors, lighting designers that can have the tendency to say, "Let just let me do it. Like, don't give me your opinion. I'm the lighting guy. Just let me tell you what's best. Oh, man. Because um, I hear that a lot. You know, I, when it comes to the function of lighting at all these events, I do know best. I know how to take what I'm being told and turn that into a visual but I have to be told something to know what direction to go in. Um, Wit, uh, Wit George, Church of the Move, um, was the king of this. Um, he he would he'd be the one to say, he goes, you know, I don't know anything about lighting. You're, you're the expert here. But I saw this thing recently, and it really spoke to me. It made me feel something. And he, he would talk about feeling, and he would talk about um, emotion and inspiration. Um, he would never talk about fixtures. He left that to me, but... Without that, without that relationship between Wit and I, everything you just said about seeds would have never happened. Um, you know, a pivotal moment for me there is when I when I first came to Church on the Move, I was a good lighting designer, but I didn't have that connection to the content that, that made all of seeds look like it did um, because I'd never worked with a creative person that could really um, tell me, communicate to me, what that was they were wanting. And there was one particular conversation with Wit and I, and I believe it was, oh gosh, it may have been Christmas in the room, in the newly remodeled room. And we were working on some stuff and I could just tell he wasn't happy and I was getting frustrated because he wasn't happy. And he goes, he goes, Daniel, your lights are pretty. They're very pretty, but it doesn't make me feel anything. And I want to feel something. I want it to be, I want to be engaged in our service. I want, you know, I want it when, when someone walks in and they've, you know, it's a dad who is, you know, just rushed his family to church because they were running late and he's fighting with his kids because they're not behaving and they finally dropped him off and he's, they get to their seats late. He didn't get the coffee in the lobby he wanted and he's just frustrated. I want him to sit down and just, I want to, in the, in the natural sense, I want us to connect with him first to help open up Jesus speaking to his heart. Um, that little conversation with Wit completely changed the way I designed lighting because it. I started focusing on not not what not can, what can I make these cool things do. You know what, but not what buttons can I press on the console. What not? Well, I've already used this gag on this one song, so I can't use it again. No, I started focusing on. Okay, my only job out here is to help visualize what the worship leaders are trying to make us feel. Um, sorry, can I get off on a tangent there? Uh, did the, yeah, that kind of answered the question. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, I caught, caught myself down going on a rabbit trail. No, but, I think uh, that's yeah. great because there yeah. are so many times when we're mixing audio where I'm, I find myself asking not what does it sound like, 
but what does it feel like? And I think if we can all, as artists who do what we do to enhance these environments, if we can think in those terms, if you have a way to sort of express yourself in those terms, it's going to be way better because most of the people who are in those environments can't tell you what's wrong about what it looks like or what's wrong about what it sounds like, but they can tell you what's wrong with how it feels. Exactly. And if we can tap into that and sort of get our heads around, okay, how do I make this feel a certain way? That that's a game changer. Yeah. I, I live for the times when the creative director, the worship leader, the pastor, whoever comes out and has a conversation with me about what they're feeling about an event. Those, those conversations make or break it for me when it, when it all exists with me, those are the events that I like the least because there's almost, you know, almost always a disconnect for me because I, you know, I'm going to leave them nameless. Um, but there was an organization I worked with last year and I, it's a good organization. Uh, I'm definitely a supporter of, of what they're doing, but I couldn't get a conversation with the creative director. Um, it was the most disconnected event, uh, I've been involved with in years because I had no idea what they want, wanted. Um, I wasn't asking questions like what fixtures do you want to use? I was asking simple questions like, Hey, what, as you guys are, are sculpting this event, what's inspiring you? What are you listening to? What have you seen lately that just like gets you excited? And so it's probably feeding what we're doing. And I couldn't get simple questions like that answered. And so when we got to the event, there was a lot of back and forth of, well, this isn't what we wanted. And I was like, yeah, no kidding. I'm not surprised. <laughs> okay, so along those same lines, I um, uh, just dropped my son off golf and then was driving back here to do this, and I turned on the uh, Kanye West interview with Zane Lowe on Apple Music, and there's an audio version of it, and there's a video one too. And about 20 minutes into it, they start talking about Kanye, and he's bought... 12,000 acres out in Wyoming in the middle of nowhere. And Zane flew out there to do this interview with him. And Zane says to him, Hey, why, why Wyoming? Why this landscape? Why, you know, why this place? And then he said something really, but something that triggered me uh, for this. He said, as I was driving out to your house, I'm looking around and I can't figure out if I'm 3000 years in the past or if I'm 3000 years in the future. Hmm. And that really hit me. And then I started thinking about you. And Daniel, I thought this about what you did in your work the first time I experienced what you did at Church on the Move, both online, but definitely in the room. That was even more impactful. And I'm sitting there at a seeds and feeling that. And it may have been one of the first times I felt moved by what I'm seeing and lighting. And then I thought, is he... 20 years in the past and it's so simple and there's barely any movement and it's so intentional or is this 20 years in the future? Yeah. I'm uh, not sure how to respond to that one. That's a pretty uh, darn good compliment. If you it is a me. good, it is a good compliment. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm left a little speechless on that one. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It's, um, trying to figure out how to explain, uh, my approach to what you're talking about. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard. It's, I think sometimes people get confused when I talk about less is more and, and, and kind of what you're, you're touching on there. Um, it's not a, it's not a matter. Well, so, uh, 
I'll explain it with a, a quote, um, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but I, I can at least get the, um, I can paraphrase. And I, I, I have this guy's name written down somewhere, and I, I can't pronounce it anyway, so there's no point in me remembering it. The quote is basically, good design is not when there's nothing left to add. Good design is when there's nothing left to take away and still have the substance of what you're trying to make. Um, that is one that I, I think, Jeez. you know, it, it doesn't, as much as I hate to say it, it doesn't drive what we do as much anymore because we work for such a variety of clients. Um, but when I get to really dig into an event and really like sink my teeth into it, that is still one where I go, I, I want it to, I want it to be as simple and clear and precise as possible. You know, uh, look at graphic design. You know, if, if you're looking through magazine advertisements and you stumble across one that has just a ton of stuff on the page, um, then it's it's hard to focus on what the main context of it is. Uh, but you know, back in back in the fifties, when um, advertisements started shifting away from the full page, you know, multi paragraph write ups. I think Volkswagen was one of the first ones that really did it, and I, I hadn't thought about this in a long time, so I can't remember exactly what the some of the titles were. But I think it was uh, it was like Think Small, or um, I may be I may be mixing Apple and Volkswagen into there because I know I know Apple was Think Different. Um, but those are some of the most impactful advertisements we'll ever, ever see. One little simple picture, a two or three word statement on a big blank page, nothing else. If we they had added a lot more information to those, it would have ruined them. Um, I approach design for events the same way. I want to have as little on stage as possible. And that doesn't mean as few of lights. It doesn't mean I'm only turning one light on, although maybe that's the case. When I say as, as little as possible, as, as little color, um, as little um, clutter may be a better word. You know, a lot of times when guys are designing stages, it's like, well, I need to have six washes on this truss and, and six profiles on this truss and I'm, I'm going to use them all at the same time. And I go, you know, I don't, I don't design that way. I design around big elements where I want to be able to have one element on by itself and it be able to stand on its own legs. And then I try and design a rig where there's maybe three or four or five or six of those to where I can have, I don't need to have the whole rig on for it to be impactful. I can have this one thing on and perhaps doing something, perhaps doing nothing. It just depends on what's going on on stage at the time, but it still be impactful. So maybe that comes on and you don't see it again for three or four songs. Uh, one of the things we used to do at COTM that people would always seem to, to blow people's minds is, you know, when LED was first really starting to get popular and we were, we were using a lot of it, uh, when I say LED, LED video wall, we were starting to use a lot of it at COTM. You know, at, at Seeds, we would sometimes do a song or two without it on. Um, yep. At church, we would go a whole weekend and not use it at all. And people would say, wait a minute, that's that's back there. Why are you why are you wasting it? You know, we're not wasting it. We're using it when it matters and it can be impactful. And when it, when it can't be, we're not. Because... If we still use these elements, whether it be LED wall or lighting fixtures or whatever, if we still use these elements when they're not impactful, then the times they can be impactful, they are now less impactful because we have worn them out. Um, It's peaks and valleys. You're not not going to have peaks. It neuters their potential impact because it's just, you feel like then you're just being bombarded by the same thing over and over again. Exactly. You have to let it breathe. Yeah. So where do you get your inspiration from? So that what I just talked about, you know, for Kanye, it may be being out in the middle of 12,000 acres gives mm-hmm. him the space and creative energy to create the things he's creating. And I would imagine for you, you're an artist. So are you looking at other 
lighting designs? Or are you looking at art or architecture or food or like, what is it for you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All okay. the above. Um, I don't have one thing. Um, other concerts, uh, other you know, theater events, other things, those do sometimes inspire me. Um, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. Sometimes I see things, I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. That's horrible. Um, <laughs> but I, I'd say maybe that's 10% of it. Um, architecture inspires me a lot. Uh, graphic design inspires me a lot. When I just see shapes on a page and they work well together, I, you know, so I think I want to add another topic into this part of the conversation. I think sometimes people think that if you have artistic ability that you are born with it or it comes naturally in some way, and that could not be further from the truth. Um, you know, I'll, I'll reference the beginning of, of our conversation today. Uh, when I got you know uh, accepted into this art school, I, I had never done an artistic thing in my life. Um, I, I'm, there's nothing about me that is naturally artistic. It just doesn't come naturally. So I need as much help as I can get. So there is there is no design I've ever done that just poof came into my head. I don't I don't have dreams in the middle of the night that I wake up with and, and go, oh, I had this vision and now we're gonna bring it to life. I need to see it somewhere first. So graphic design is a big one. Um I've got a lot of books here in my office from just um different design books that you know cover everything from advertising to just general graphic design to architecture um is a big one. Um you know Airports, inter- interestingly enough, have some of the most amazing architecture in the country. Um, mm. Very well designed, very uh, very thought out. Um, I've had several designs I've done that started as you know some piece of some airport somewhere in the country. Um, I love architecture in general. Um, oh gosh, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Tulsa's actually, I didn't realize this, but it's a hot spot for that. It is. I didn't realize uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright. That's who I was trying. It's like you're reading mind. Yeah. He has a house in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was with a friend there a few weeks ago that's into architecture, and he said, hey, drive by this address. There's an old Frank Lloyd Wright house here. Yep, sure is. I have, I've driven by. Um, his and stuff. The, ven- the venue in Tulsa is like an architectural, like people just go wild over the shape of the arena in the BOK, Tulsa. Yeah. The BOK Center is because Absolutely. it's this architectural gem and Tulsa in general is that way um we have some real gems here I mean um you know uh, there's I would say ORU's campus has both some some great stuff and some some (laughs) horrible examples of of architecture uh but it's a good mix um but yeah a lot of of mid-century stuff here which just that's it that's it um I'm a heathen I can't handle the praying hands (laughs) Um, no, uh, you know, architecture, I'm trying to think of what else there's, um, I don't think there's really a limit. Um, I think you can, if you're a good artist, hopefully your just eyes are always open. Um, and you can be inspired by just about anything. Um, you know, I've got a, uh, I'll tell one of my, my tricks. I'm currently using Evernote for this, but I need to switch to something else soon. Um, but I have, and I, I actually took this idea from someone else. So, uh, I call this my swipe book. So I, I also swiped the idea of the swipe book from someone else, but it's where I swipe, I swipe ideas. You swipe uh, right or left. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that a, t- <laughs> what is that? A t- what is that? Tinder or grinder? I can keep up with the two. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> no, Moving right. on. All right. Uh, so 
Yeah, that's where if I see something that I find inspiring, I'll snap a picture of my phone and just put that in the book. And sometimes stuff never gets used. Sometimes it gets used right away. Sometimes it's in there for years. And finally, I'll I'll be I'll feel like I don't have any ideas, and I'll go through my swipe book and be like, oh, hey, this is neat. Let's pull it out. Okay, that's cool. So as we get towards wrapping up here, I just thought of something that might be fun. I'm just going to ask you a question and say the first answer that pops in your head. Oh, I'm so quickly. scared. I will only have two. Maybe Jeff has a few more he can add. First one, what should a young LD start doing today? Meeting people. What should a young LD stop doing today? <laughs> Look, oh gosh, that's a hard one. Uh, um, no, wait, say what you were going to say. <laughs> looking at people too far down the road from him. What it's, do you mean by that? It's so easy to see what the guy... 10 years ahead of you is doing and think that's what you need to be doing. No, no, no. You need to be doing what's right for you in the place that you're at. And I think, I think guys get caught up and go, Oh, well I'm only here using my, you know, eight year old lighting console at this, at, at the church that I work at where we only have four, four, yeah. You know, Ava lights Pearl where we only have four. Mo- or I think the one I hear the most is Martin light jockey. I'm using my Martin light jockey software with my four moving lights and I see this guy over at the church across town using a full-size Grand MA and a bunch of brand-new Verilites and yada, yada, yada. And I'm going, man, it, like we start talked about earlier, the times I'm most thankful for, uh, you know, I'll say this a different way. I'm so thankful that when I came up through this business, there was no social media. There was no way to look at what the other guys were doing. And had, had I been able to do that, it would have been such a trap for me. So, how, so, do you, so how do you advise a young guy the difference between looking at that stuff to be inspired and looking at that stuff and feeling like you're less than, or you're missing out or FOMO or any of that, like, or that I have to be able to do this in order to have value. So I started, like we talked about earlier at at around 11 years old. And for four years, I never touched another lighting console besides this little one in this theater um, with a bunch of, literally every piece of equipment I had at the time was older than I was. Um, you know, I went on to high school and it wasn't much better. We finally had a, a computerized, a computerized lighting console, but it was like it was created in DOS. And I didn't touch anything else besides that for another two or three years. So the, for the first six or seven years of me being involved in lighting, it was nothing but old beat up equipment. And the only, re- the only reason I got to start working with other stuff after that was because um, I was working for this lighting company and it wasn't much better. It was a bunch of park hands, and honestly, the the first time I feel like I can say, man, I was using a really cool big rig and doing a lot of really cool stuff, I would have been 19 or 20 years old maybe. So eight or nine years after I started doing lighting. Every moment of those eight or nine years before I first started getting to use stuff on a big scale is incredibly valuable to where I'm at today. Um, I just, I think it's so easy when we're, when we're younger to get caught up in time, like, Oh my gosh, I have to hurry. And I, I did eight or nine years of just working on junk pretty much and hardly ever getting to touch a moving light. Um, and then, you know, starting out touring, it was, it was a real mix. Sometimes it was, you know, neat, cool, big rigs. Sometimes, you know, I had been touring for eight or nine years when I went out with Switchfoot, and we did several tours where my entire lighting rig consisted of 12 LEDs and a few audience blinders. And (laughs) I think you're muted. Yeah. 
<laughs> You're good. No. Um, so start that when I was at with Switchfoot. So, you know, when I was, I had been touring for eight or nine years, um, and I was out on tour with Switchfoot, and I, I had come from doing trucks, or doing tours with three or four trucks, um, you know, two or three trucks of just lighting. And suddenly out with them, uh, a very common rig for us was 12 little LED color blast fixtures and a couple audience lights. And I had to go make a show out of that, but that's what they could afford, and that's what we had, and they were a cool band to work with. Um, but there was nothing big about it. And sure enough, that that, that hit me in the uh, in my ego a little bit. Um, but I got to do, you know, the nature of those tours at that time is we just had to walk in to whatever was there and figure out how to make a good show out of it. Um, like I've said several times in this conversation, uh, you know, today's my birthday. I turned 41. Looking back at the past 25 years of my career, it's not the times that I had everything that I needed that I'm thankful for. It's all the times I didn't. Um, and we just had to figure it out. So that's, that's, I guess that's what I'd say to the young guys is if you are dealing with not enough, if you're dealing with not enough gear, not enough help, not enough time, then I'm happy for you because that means you're getting the lessons that you need to figure out how to really do this well. The guys that have all the toys, um, God help them because the minute they don't, the minute they're somewhere they don't, they're not going to know what to do. Do you feel like, this is maybe rhetorical, there's a problem with young LDs, whether it's with a country band or whether it's with a church, that they're designing their looks and their end goal is what that's going to look like on Instagram? Oh, 100%. Yeah, 100%. I, and like you said earlier, I don't, it's not exclusive to the church. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the, the mirror you know, this way for a minute and go, I'm guilty of that. I've done that before. You know, it was, it was, you know, when social media was first coming out, um, I discovered something. If you took a picture of your show and your full size grand MA was in the foreground, you got more likes. Oh, I'm, this isn't an exaggeration. This isn't, it's, I, I mean, I tested it. Wow. And so if you go back and dig through my Instagram, you can find, um, and I think I still got some of the old ones up there, but and this may have been more back from in the Facebook days. I can't remember or Twitter, but Sure enough, if yeah, I could, if it was a, I could take a picture of the same event with a console in the foreground or without it, and that would have, that would affect how many li- uh, likes I got. So there was times I did it because the early days of of social media, we didn't. I don't think any of us really had a healthy view of it. Right. We didn't. We didn't know what it was for yet. It was like, oh well, these people are liking what I'm doing. I guess this is good. Um. So you know. I'll, I know it. I'm, I'm not saying that I, I drove this whole thing. So I think this is a pro, even outside of our industry. I think the whole uh, effect of likes has it has had a, a negative impact on people. But you know, within our industry, I look back and at the early days of it and go, well, okay, I definitely didn't start this problem, but I fed it some in the way that we did things. Um, so yeah, no, I I I think social media in general. Let's let's say even take it outside of what we do. I think everyone at a young age now makes decisions on what they're doing based on how many likes it's going to get on social media. It's a, it's the, it's the whole, you know, rat in the cage thing where if the the rat does what it's supposed to and it hits the button, it gets the piece of cheese. Well, those likes release that dopamine and, uh, you want to get them. So we do what gets them. Um, when it's, when it's only affecting us, that's one thing. 
when it's affecting the way that our organization is communicating with people and the way that our organization is spending resources, then it's a problem. Okay, we could talk for another hour on that alone. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll save so that. so wise, man. So much wisdom. Golly, I just want to keep talking. It's so good. We'll save that for next month. We're about an hour yeah. in on your birthday, so thanks yeah. for oh, My pleasure, guys. Um, I love it. All right, well, everybody, uh, we're going to wrap this up. Thanks for listening. As always, you know, check out MXU Now um, lighting videos. They're coming. We're going to throw them on there. Let's do it. And we've got an event in January, January 15th in Anaheim. will be the next audio event. That is with Robert Scoville and Pooch, Jeff, and myself. We're super excited about that. Cannot wait. You, can I come hang out? Yeah, you should come. You know what? Out. You know what, Daniel? Maybe you should come and figure out what it would look like to do a, a live lighting event. Mm, let's talk about it. I know some people. Okay. At the, at the very least, we need to have a... Uh, a meetup so that guys can come and meet you and find out more about MXU lighting and ask questions and have a have a meal together or something. Well, let's decide this right now. I'll, I'll be there for sure. All right. So. Okay. Well, we'll do that. More info on that coming soon. Um, anything else, guys? No, Daniel. We can't thank you enough for helping us get this thing started. I can't wait to see where this heads. I know we're going to have a lot of great conversations with people like yourself. Um, who just have so much to bring to this tribe. And as we all try to get better at what we do and get better at who we are in the process, I can't think of a better person to lead that conversation than you. So thanks so much for your time today and all your wisdom. It's, man, so good. Oh, I'm so excited. It's been so cool to watch what you guys have done uh, for audio through MXU the past few years. And for, for every person that's come and told you guys you got to start something with lighting, uh, I guarantee just as many people have come to me and said the same. And uh, I don't feel, I've never felt it's my calling to start something like this, uh, but honored to get to be a part of one because I feel like our industry desperately needs it. Well, we're going to Golden State Warriors this thing and just put all the best people in the world on the team. <laughs> Stack just, this thing, man. Hey, you are Golden State Warrior in it because you're still people from Oklahoma, right? That's right. Oh, that's funny. That's yep, funny. Yep. <laughs> you're the Kevin Durant of MXU. Oh, man. Golly. <laughs> oh, my head, that's my awesome. head's not big enough already. All right, we'll see you guys. See you.